Good morning and uh, welcome. Good to join voices together. Grateful we can gather in this space. Grateful for those who uh, made it look uh, ready for Christmas. And we continue in this sermon series to try to get us ready for Christmas during this time called Advent. Uh, many things to be thankful for. I'm thankful that God has given me a wife. We've gotten to spend more than half of our lives now married to each other. It all began in 2001 with a simple and joyful wedding ceremony at the church that Kirsten had grown up in. Had our wedding in the sanctuary and then everybody just walked down the hall to the church fellowship hall for our reception. It was simple and it was joyful and I'm very grateful uh, to be married to Kirsten and that we got to start uh, in that way. Um, so some of you have been to weddings, though, that are a little more extravagant and over the top. Um, maybe like the picture pictured here. Uh, I've not been to that wedding. That was just one that I found. Uh, but I remember as a kid going to a wedding where the reception was in a hotel like reception room. There was a pool right there by the side. Everybody dressed really fancy. They were eating food I had never eaten before, but it tasted really good. And there were people playing beautiful stringed instruments that would come around to all of the tables and just play things for you. It was over the top. It was extravagant. And it was beautiful in many ways. Today, we're going to continue our Advent series in the psalm by looking at a psalm that was written and usually used at a royal wedding. It's a song written to celebrate the wedding of a king and his bride. Well, on, on the face of this psalm, this song, it's, it's beautiful, and it's clearly a love song. It's a royal wedding song, and God's people would have used it in those occasions for centuries leading up to the birth of Christ. Part one of the sermon then, we'll be just looking at what does this beautiful royal wedding love song have to say. To be honest with you though, it was a couple of months ago that I went through the Psalms and picked out four Psalms for the four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve. We're going to look at these Psalms that point us ahead to Jesus. I picked out four and then I didn't get to study this one till this week. I looked at it this week on Monday and I thought to myself, why in the world did I pick that psalm? But I'd already given it to Pastor Nick and the worship team. And like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at this a little bit more and try to figure out why I picked a royal wedding love song uh, to be a song that would prepare us for Christmas this year. And I'm glad that I did in the end. As I studied it this week, I saw how the New Testament uses this psalm. And, and by studying this psalm through the lens of the gospel... I found it to be even more beautiful than it is on its surface. So, we're going to have two parts of the sermon today. Part one, let's look at a beautiful royal wedding love song and how it was originally used. And then, let's look at it again through the lens of the New Testament and what we have of the gospel of Jesus Christ in it. So, um, we're going to look at that today. You've got a sermon outline uh, inside your bulletin that might help you as you walk through it. And, and I think you're going to find that Maybe not initially. Maybe initially you'll just say, that's a beautiful love song. And then as we dig a little bit deeper, you might come to conclude with me, this is a rich feast that leads us 
to feast on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I think will actually lead us right into communion together today. So that's the plan. If you're able to, would you stand? We will read all of Psalm 45. It is the very word of God. I'm going to pray, and then we'll read. Father, thank you that you brought all of these people into this space on this day. Um, Thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired this psalm to be written and used by your people for centuries uh, in certain occasions, but thank you uh, for the rest of your word in the New Testament, and thank you for the way that that shines a light on this in a way we might not see by initially looking at it. So we need you, though, Uh, just like you did in my office this week as I looked at this passage. We need you to work in our hearts, in our minds, that our eyes might be drawn to you, that our love for you might increase, and that we might trust in you in all things. So please help make that happen now in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 45, God's Word says this, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the King. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter... And consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. and many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat and let's, let's dive right in. One thing you're going to notice about the Psalms is that some of the Psalms have a superscription. Okay, so almost like a title above the psalm, in my Bible they're all in capital letters, and if you looked at those, you would notice that Psalms 42 through Psalms 49, there's this string of psalms packed together, all of them have this in common. They're psalms of the sons of Korah, and they're psalms written to the choir master. Okay? So this whole set of them, they're songs of the sons of Korah written to the choir master, and there's a couple particular things we need to notice about this. By the way, these superscriptions in the Psalms, they're super old. They've been around for a really long time, but they were probably not written by the same person who wrote the Psalm. 
Okay, so add it in later, but pretty reliable. Okay, so we wouldn't say that these little, I didn't read that. We wouldn't say this is the word of God, but they're helpful giving us some context for some of the Psalms. So look at Psalm 45, and notice the superscription there. That's going to be helpful as we dive into this, so we know what we're looking at. It says, to the choir master, according to lilies. So they must have known this song called Lilies, and this psalm was written to the tune of a song that they knew called Lilies, okay? So, so they, they, they knew the tune. They could take these words and put it to that tune, a masculine, we don't totally know what that means, some musical or liturgical term, of the sons of Korah, and then it says a love song. So that's what this is. This is unique. The Song of Solomon is a book in the Bible that is, in many ways, like a love song, but this is really the only of the Psalms that you could look at and say, this is a love song. And this is a, a love song. And it begins also uniquely where we get a little eye into the person who's writing the Psalm tells us about the inspiration and the tone for this. The writer of the Psalm says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. Okay, so this is a song written primarily to the king, the one who is about to get married, the one who is about to be the groom, is the one to whom this song is primarily written. A pleasing theme, my tongue is ready like the pen of a ready scribe. It's not that, that the person writing this psalm is under a compulsion and just like, well, I guess i got to write a psalm for the... Like, no, he's excited to be doing this. this. He's inspired to write this beautiful love song for this beautiful occasion. Okay, so that's the context of this psalm, a royal wedding love song. And verses 2 through 9 are really a celebration of the groom king. You probably noticed this as I read it, that it begins by celebrating the groom of this wedding, the king, and then moves on in verse 10 to celebrate the bride. So let's look at what it says first about this groom king. In verses 2 through 5, this king is described as handsome, gracious, blessed by God, a mighty warrior, majestic, righteous, awe-inspiring, mighty, and victorious. So lots of words used to praise this king on his wedding day. It's a unique psalm because many of the other nations around Israel, they would have sung praises often to their kings, almost in many ways, seeing their kings as gods. But Israel didn't see their kings as God. They knew they, there was only one God. Yet, even in this song, there are words of praise to this king. He calls him handsome, calls him gracious and blessed by God, a mighty warrior. All of these words used to describe the king here. And in verses 6 to 9, he continues, I'm going to flip the page here in my Bible, with these words. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, all of a sudden, we were talking about a king, and now he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, that's not abnormal. In Hebrew poetry, which is what the Psalms are, they would often turn from like talking in one person and then talking to another. So talking like in first person and then talking third person. So, so okay, all of a sudden, I guess now it's not about the king. Now it's about God, right, is what it sounds like. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. These sound like things that are true about their God. But then you get to the middle of verse 7, and it sounds confusing 
Because it says, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. So, is he referring to their king as a God who's anointed? Like, what's going on here? How many of you have maybe a song uh, that you knew? I used to listen to a lot of classic rock when I was, like, in high school. And there were these songs I would listen to, often that were written in a different era. And I would know all the words to the song, but I didn't really know what they meant. How many of you have songs where, like, I love that song? And then you're just like, what does that even mean? You know what I'm talking about? Like, there can be a song that you feel like you know really well, but you don't even really actually know what it means. I wonder if, as Israel and Judah would sing this song, maybe usually at royal weddings, I wonder when they sang this section, if they're just like, that's beautiful. I really don't totally get it, because, like, our king's not God, but it sounds like, I don't, I don't, anyway, it's a beautiful song, so they just maybe keep singing. I don't know. Uh, maybe that's the way it went, but at least we got to kind of stop and recognize there's some tension here in verses 6 and 7. I'm not totally sure what that's about, because it seems like it's a love song uh, for a, a king and his bride. Uh, all right, well, let's just keep singing, right? Because uh, then it goes on, and it, now it's talking about robes that are fragrant with myrrh and aloe, talking about ivory palace and stringed instruments, and now it's like, you know, it's talking about the king again in verses 8 and 9. What's going on here? Well, then the shift comes to the bride, okay? The shift comes to the bride starting in verse 10. Verses 10 to 12 highlight God's good design in marriage. The bride is encouraged. Remember that God is the one who designed marriage. We get it all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. And even though Adam and Eve didn't have parents, God is establishing marriage. And so God says to them, the two will become one flesh. You will leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife, right? So there's a, there's a leaving behind, a transfer of loyalty from the family you grew up in now to your marriage relationship. Right? So, so that's established from early on. We see that really again here in verses 10 through 12. Forget your people and your father's house. Right? There's the idea of submission uh, as well in there. And then verses 13 to 15 highlight the beauty of the princess and the, the spectacle that is this extravagant royal wedding. Notice what it says. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. This is expensive. She's not, she, didn't get her, she didn't get her dress at the thrift store, right? It, robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. They apparently did weddings differently. We have the, the maids of honor go in in front of the bride. The bride is the last one to come in. There, in this case, they're following the bride going with her to the king's palace. And it says, with joy and gladness, they are led along. So just this beautiful picture of this, this joyful, glad wedding party coming to the king's palace. The king, who is the groom, is ready. The bride has gotten ready. She's coming, and it's going to be this joyous celebration. And part of it is, it says in verses 16 and 17, I think the shift is now to celebrating the king's future. This also happens at weddings now today. I remember at our wedding, the pastor who was doing the message said something about like one day when there's a whole bunch of little Jeremy's running around, uh, which was scary to us when we were 20 years old and just getting married, trying to picture a bunch of little Jeremy's, scary to anybody, a bunch of little Jeremy's running around, right? Um, but, but we often talk about the future of the couple as they're getting married, and here we have 
these words about the future of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. That might be another spot where you're like, is that just about this king? Well, I don't know. Let's just, it's a beautiful song, right? Uh, So, you kind of get the idea. We've gone through all of Psalm 1. This is part one of the sermon. We're going we're gonna to go back and look at some parts and try to look at it from a different angle here in just a moment. But you get the idea. It's a beautiful royal wedding love song. And if there's any application from us just looking at it at this level, I would just say it's this. Very quick application point. We need to celebrate true marriage because it's a beautiful thing. Right? Marriage as God instituted and designed it between one man and one woman. Now, we live in a culture that has distorted it and defines all kinds of other things as marriage, and we will hold on to what Scripture has to say marriage is and say, no, marriage, when it is between a husband and a wife, one man and one woman, is a beautiful thing worthy of a book in the Bible called Song of Solomon and worthy of a psalm in the whole Psalter, Psalm 45, a royal wedding love song. Let's celebrate marriage and love because it is a beautiful thing designed by God. All right? Now, we could just end the sermon there, but we're in a Christian church, and nothing I've said so far would probably offend uh, somebody who is not a Christian. Now I'm going to start doing that because what we do as Christians is we as Christians recognize that God has revealed himself in his word, not just in the 39 books of the Old Testament, which splits about here somewhere in my Bible, But God also reveals himself and his plan through the New Testament. And the New Testament helps us to better understand the Old Testament. So in your notes there, you might see a note, something about moving from the Old Testament to today. If this song, Psalm 45, like if I asked people in the church today, like give me your 10 favorite psalms, I would guess that nobody in the church would have said Psalm 45 is in my top 10. It's not on your greatest hits list. Right? Because it seems so specific in its application. It's a royal wedding love song. There's so many others that, oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? Uh, He's knitted you together in your mother's womb. All these beautiful psalms that we would turn to, Psalm 45 is not a very well-known psalm. And if you think about, even in the life of God's people, of Israel and Judah, under various kings... If you think about it, I'm reading through 2 Chronicles right now, and and some of Judah's kings are good, and some are not. None of Israel's kings are good, right? They don't do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And so there's so many times in their history where you're like, I'm not sure. Like, a lot of the kings, they rose to power through murder and treachery. And this, like, beautiful royal wedding love song might not seem to fit uh, all of the time throughout Israel's history. So I wonder how frequently this was used by God's people. We don't know much about that. I just, I wonder about it. But here's what we want to do as Christians. As Christians, we want to say, well, maybe there's more to it. Here's why we wonder if there's more to it. Because of two things that Jesus said. In John chapter 5, verse 39, here's what Jesus said. You search the Scriptures because you think that. When he's saying Scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament, right? You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus is saying, what is the Old Testament doing? It is bearing witness about him. 
Right? So Jesus himself is saying, the Old Testament is saying something about me. So as Christians, when we look at the Old Testament, that's what we believe to be true. Oh, the Old Testament is saying something about Jesus. Because Jesus himself said it was. Also, Luke chapter 24, this would be another thing that Jesus said. Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, and listen, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus himself telling his disciples that there are things in the Psalms about him that must be fulfilled. So we as Christians then, when we look at a psalm, we're expecting it not just to be a song used by Israel and Judah in their history, but a psalm that says something about Jesus. Okay, what does it say about Jesus? Do we just get to make it up? Well, no, we don't have to, right? We need to first and foremost look, is there a spot in the New Testament that uses this and applies it to Jesus? And in this case, the answer is yes, there is which is why I picked it a couple months ago for us to look at to prepare for Christmas. And I forgot about it until I studied it on Monday, right? Also, we can ask this question. Are there themes brought up in this psalm that point us ahead to themes that are further carried out in the New Testament? And the answer to that one also is yes. So let's spend the rest of our time just looking at that. First of all, this is quoted in the New Testament. There are two verses from the book of Psalm chapter 45, that are quoted in the New Testament. And they are quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. So, which verses are they? They're verses 6 and 7. I'm going to just stay right here in Psalm 45 and look at verses 6 and 7 again. Uh, We did a couple of years ago a sermon series through the book of Hebrews. And when we went through it, we repeated every week that the point of the book of Hebrews is to convince people to stick with Jesus because he's better than anything. Okay? Remember, the book of Hebrews is about sticking with Jesus because he's better than anything. And Hebrews, right off the bat in chapter 1, has a whole string of Old Testament quotes trying to prove that Jesus is better than anything. In fact, Jesus is better than angels is what chapter 1 is trying to prove. And has a whole string of Old Testament quotations. One of them is one we looked at last week in Psalm 2, and another one comes right from Psalm 45. And guess what? It's those two verses in the middle that were kind of confusing. Those lyrics that made us scratch our head, like, who's this about? I don't get it. God's anointing. God, what, what's going on here? And Hebrews 1, 8, 9 quotes Psalm 45, 6, and 7. Now, if we, if we understand what Jesus is saying, that the Psalms are about me, things to be fulfilled in me, then look at verses 6 and 7 a little differently. Look at verses 6 and 7. They say this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. True. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your comparison. Okay, so now we can start to see, oh, uh, it's like, like, yeah, the king of Israel and the king of Jesus, like that, that's not the God. The God is this coming king who will be anoint, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, right? Oh, okay. So Hebrews 1 is helping us to see that Psalm 45, 6 and 7, which sounded initially a little confusing to us, is about Jesus. All right. So that's the quotation. That's helpful. But I think there's also some themes, and I want to just pick up on this to have three quick gospel applications where we see the Psalms pointing us ahead, this Psalm and the themes in it 
pointing us ahead to things that are fulfilled in Jesus. I think ultimately, if you ask the question in the New Testament, do we see a lot of things about the king and do we see a lot of things about Jesus as groom? Oh, we do. So let's go ahead and look at a couple of those spots. John chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible if you brought a Bible with you. John chapter 3. All right, I'm turning all over the place today, so I'm uh, John 3. Here we go. John 3, this is a time early on in John's gospel, there's not the John who's writing it, but another John that we call John the Baptist, had a bunch of people coming to him out in the wilderness. He had a bunch of followers, he was doing a bunch of baptisms, getting people ready for Jesus, but then as Jesus' public ministry begins, a lot of people start to go with Jesus, and John is kind of neglected. And the people are like, well, John, that's not good for you, right? Like, like Jesus is getting all the followers now, and you're not. Isn't that a problem, John? Look at John chapter 3, beginning in verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, talking about Jesus, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. They see this as a problem. Does John see it as a problem? Look at it. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one, and here's the language, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, and that's who John sees himself as in this whole thing. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I've done a number of weddings during my time as pastor, and one of the things I always do when I'm doing the wedding rehearsal is I let everybody know, hey, we're lining ourselves up in the center, and the bride and the groom are in the center of this wedding ceremony. If you're here as a maid of honor or as a groomsman, you're going to be off on the side. How awkward would it be if one of the groomsmen just tried to spend the whole wedding ceremony getting everybody to pay attention to him? And that's what John is saying here. John is saying, listen, I'm just a friend of the groom. This is not about me. So you think I'm upset that people are going to him and not me? I want everybody to go to him. I was just sent before him to prepare the way for him. It's, it's John's desire that everybody's attention be on Jesus because Jesus is the groom, right? So, so that's kind of the first instance we get of hearing something about Jesus being the groom. So then we can like, oh, so kind of a wedding uh, kind of theme. We see that throughout not just the whole Bible, but or throughout the old, whole Old Testament, but also the New Testament. All right, so... So we want to be a church like that, just some application. If Jesus is the exalted groom, then we want to exalt him. We want to be like John the Baptist, that we as a church don't put ourselves on center stage, but we make sure Jesus is center stage, that we are looking at Jesus and exalting him. He must increase, I must decrease. That's the way we ought to look at it individually and as a church. All right, so that's gospel application one. Gospel application two would be this. That Jesus loves his bride. Jesus loves his bride. That's a theme in the New Testament too. Flip over. This is a passage I use at many weddings that I do. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, it gets used at a lot of weddings, and rightly so, because there is some instruction to husbands and wives in this. 
And I'll get to that in a second. But we can't overlook the fact that this isn't even primarily about husbands and wives. Ephesians chapter 5 says things like this. Here's where we see the gospel in Ephesians 5. It does start out with instructions to wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as... Now listen, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. This is good news. This is gospel news. Jesus is the head of his body, the church, and he is its Savior. Now we continue. Verse 25, a a command for husbands, love your wives, but then notice... As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is good news. Good news. Good news. Jesus is the groom who has given himself up for his bride. This is good news. Verses 26 and 27. That he, that's Jesus, might sanctify her. Jesus, the husband, the church, the bride, might sanctify her. Make her more holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. None of us can do that on our own. How does the bride become cleansed and holy and presented before the groom as she should be? It's only because of what the groom has done. And then verses 29 and 30. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, listen, just as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. What does Christ do with His bride? He nourishes. He cherishes. This is filled with good news. And again, just to highlight, this is really ultimately about Jesus and the church. Jesus the groom, His church the bride. Verse 32, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Just to make it clear, if you hadn't gotten it so far, I'm just going to come right out and say it. This is about Christ and the church. Now, is it also about marriage? Is it also about husband and wives? Yes, it's about both, right? Primarily about Christ and the church, but there's some application that marriage is supposed to reflect this relationship of Christ and the church. So this, there, there's a command there, wives, submit to your husbands, right? This runs contrary to our culture and contrary to our nature and desires sometimes, but wives, when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live this out and obey this command, you offer to your husband and to your children, if God gives you children, and to the world around us a beautiful picture of the gospel. That's what God intended marriage to be, and husbands. We are called, we got a lot more commands here, to love our wives sacrificially in the same way that Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? He gave himself up for her. We give up our desires, our needs, our wants for the good of our wives because that's what our Christ has done. And in doing so, empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey that command, we display for the world the gospel. We nourish and cherish our wives. Men, husbands, you doing this. Right? Nourishing and cherishing our wives like Christ does the church. We need to grow in this, men. I need to grow in this. Uh, just one quick advertisement. Uh, in January and February, we are at 9 o'clock going to have two Sunday school classes. There's going to be a women's Sunday school class and a men's Sunday school class. And men, we are going to be talking specifically for eight weeks, 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. 
we're going to be talking specifically about how we as men can love our wives like Christ loved the church. We're going to talk about marriage. We need to grow in this and obey these kind of commands in order that we can display the beauty of the gospel to our wives, to our children, to our grandchildren, and to the world all around us. Right? So, Jesus loves his bride, and we should let our marriages reflect this. One final application before we get to communion, and that is this. In John's vision, which we have as the last book of the Bible called Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. John sees and hears things that most of us can't see and hear yet. Things ahead and things above are what he sees. And it's a beautiful picture of what is to come for all who have been saved, who are part of the church, the the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Listen to what it says in Revelation 19. The Revelation is 22 chapters. We're almost at the end of the Bible when we read this. Listen, this is beautiful. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Maybe... Your wedding day was no extravagant royal wedding. Maybe it was a simple wedding like ours. Maybe your wedding didn't lead to a marriage filled with happiness and joy, but ended instead in divorce. Maybe you don't still get to celebrate your wedding day with the one you loved because the one you loved and married has passed away. And maybe you long for your wedding day and it hasn't come yet and sometimes you wonder if it ever will. But may we all look ahead to this blessed day when we, the bride of Christ, have been made ready and we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb with our voices joined together with a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation ransomed by the blood of the Lamb, singing so loudly it sounds like the roar of many waters. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And we will exalt and rejoice and give Him the glory because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. This is what we long for. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And so in those ways, I think we can move from seeing Psalm 45 as only a royal wedding love song that is beautiful and rightly celebrates marriage, 
And through the lens of the quotation in the New Testament and through the themes that are carried through in the New Testament, we can say, this is about more than just that. And this can lead us to Jesus. And it can lead us to communion. And so we're going to prepare for communion by me now praying and then sharing a bit more from one of the Gospels that takes us to communion here in a bit. But let's go ahead and pray. We pray and say with John, the author of Revelation, come Lord Jesus, because we long to be with you. Father, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful psalm that points us ahead to even more beautiful realities that you have fulfilled in your Son. We know from reading the rest of your word that Jesus is your forever King who rules righteously. That Jesus is the exalted groom who loves his bride and gave himself up for us. God, as we await that day when we join the marriage supper of the Lamb, we just give you thanks that we can now eat from another table that you have prepared for us. I pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds and bodies to take the bread and to take the cup in a worthy manner. Thank you for the body of your Son broken for us. Thank you for His blood shed for us. We know that's the only way we can come to you, and so we come to you in the name of your Son. Amen. We're going to take communion here in a moment.